Levi Brackman here with Truths, Jewish Wisdom for today. Thank you so much for joining. This season we are talking about Lurianic Kabbalah. Last week we spoke about my evolved approach to the study of Kabbalah. And today I want to get more into the Kabbalah itself. But before we do that, if you like this podcast, please subscribe, like it, leave a review wherever you listen or see this podcast. Now we got that out of the way, let's jump right into the podcast. In the previous podcast, I spoke about my approach to Kabbalah. Today, we're going to talk about the history of Kabbalah, how it evolved, where it came from. And I'm going to set forth the following thesis, which I'm going to set about to try and demonstrate. And that is that these ideas, these mystical ideas, weren't new to Judaism at all. There are some who argue that some of these ideas are brand new in the 13th century and these were all new to Judaism. And my argument is going to be that this very strong mystical theme of imagery and different aspects of the divine are found within Judaism from the very beginning, from the Torah itself. And so that is going to be part of my argument. I'm not going to go into it extensively. One could go on for this for many hours, but I'm just going to cherry-pick a few texts in which to show that, and we're going to do some textual study as well. My argument is going to be that the systemization of these ideas started to happen in the 13th century and onwards, culminated in a major way with Lurianic Kabbalah, which is the focus of this season of the podcast. But the ideas, the mystical ideas, came much earlier on. And by mysticism, I am going to define that as anything related to the imagination or the uh, experience of something which is beyond the physical. That's how I'm going to describe it specifically as it relates to the divine itself. So let's jump into some of the texts that are deeply mystical in nature, which are found in the Torah itself. So to mention a few, we can go back all the way to the beginning of Genesis itself. God created the world. Here we have a story of God interacting with the universe, how he created the world. He spoke and the world came into being. And then we have the situation of Adam, the first man, being in the Garden of Eden and talking to God and... God telling him what he should and shouldn't do, and then eventually he sins and he gets banished from the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, was that a physical place or not? That is a very interesting conversation and question that is uh, spoken about in the Jewish tradition. Perhaps it's not, a, according to at least some Kabbalists, wasn't a real physical place. Anyway, this is a very deeply mystical text and story. We find the story going on. There are plenty of other stories of Abraham talking to angels and dreams of ladders all the way through Genesis. And we find, though, as we get into Exodus, we find this highly mystical story of Moses and the burning bush. And <laughs> Moses asking God what his name is. And uh, I will be who I will be. Eya Asha Eya, God says. This is a highly mystical description of the divine as well, which is found in uh, Exodus 3, the story of Moses and the burning bush. Of course, we find Exodus 9 to 20, the revelation at Sinai. And there is one particular text that I do want to uh, read just a little bit from where there's a dialogue which God has with Moses, where Moses asks God to actually show me all your goodliness, show me who you are, so I may know you, and that I know that I and my people have found favor in your eyes. And that is Exodus 33. And he says, pray, let me see your glory. And God says, I will cause all my godliness to pass in front of your face. And I will call out the name 
of he uses the ineffable term of God in, before your face in front of you. And then he says, and I will show favor to whom I show favor and I shall show mercy to whom I show mercy. And then God says, you cannot see my face for no human can see me and live. And then God says, here is a place next to me. Station yourself on the rock and it shall be when my glory passes by, I will place you in the cleft of the rock and screen you with my hand until I have passed by. Really interesting mystical text. Here we see God has a hand. God is screening Moses from seeing his face. He's passing by, but God can't see his face. These are highly anthropomorphic ideas of God and different elements of God. There's God's hand. There's God's face. There's God's back. You can see all these parts of God, all these different parts of God. And Moses can see many of them, but cannot see God's face. Really highly mystical text with lots of deep ideas in it. Is this a God, a one God or not? Is this really the God of Maimonides? That God which Maimonides talks about where it is the negative attribute theology that you can't say anything positive about God. You can only know God from what God isn't. Actually, Maimonides uses this verse to explain that actually you can't see God's face, but you can see his back. In other words, you can see what he isn't, but you can't see what he is. So we actually use this to explain the negative attribute theology. However, when one reads this text, it seems that there is God which has a hand. He's covering God. And of course, Maimonides explains that this verse is figurative and is not to be taken literally at all. As a matter of fact, in the guide, the chapter 28, the third section of the guide, Maimonides actually says, quoting the Midrash, Leviticus Rabbah, he says that the sages wanted to suppress the book of Ecclesiastes because its words inclined to those of the heretics. In other words, a lot of these ideas which are figures of God, which are anthropomorphic, the sages wanted to suppress them according to this Midrash, which the Rambam Maimonides quotes in chapter 28 of the second section of the, of the guide to the perplexed because it could make people go astray and think that God actually has a hand. But whatever you want to put it, these are ideas which are found in the Torah itself. As a matter of fact, I would quote here the Ravad, Rab Avram ben David, in response to Maimonides, where he says in the Laws of Tshuva, of Repentance, chapter 3, Halakha 7, that anyone who believes that God has a body is considered to be a heretic, the Ravad says, why would you call that such a person a heretic? And he uses these words. And by the way, the Ravad was a contemporary of Maimonides. And he says, In other words, there were people who were greater and better than Maimonides, the Ravad says, who believed and went into this channel of thought, who actually believed that God had the body. Because they saw it in the text. They saw it in texts like this, which says that God has a hand and he, and he has a face. You couldn't see his face. He was going to, God was going to use his hand to, in order to make sure that, my, that Moses couldn't see his face. These are highly descriptive. Maimonides says they're figurative, but it does indicate different aspects of the divine. So these are some which are found in the Chamesh Chumsha Torah, in the five books of Moses. You also find, fascinatingly, in the Psalms, where, which is a highly mystical text as well, where you find this idea found in Psalm number 104, which talks about 
the, which I'll just read some of the verses of it. Again, I'll translate into English that it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed in glory and majesty, wrapped in a robe of light. You spread the heavens like a tent cloth. He sets the rafters of his lofts in the waters, makes the clouds his chariot, moves on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messenger, fiery flames his servants. He established the earth on its foundations so it shall never totter. In other words, this idea of a highly anthropomorphic God with different elements exists also in the Psalms, these mystical texts. There is also the whole story of the chariot. Here's another one. The whole story of the chariot of Maaseh Merkava, which is found in Ezekiel. Wouldn't do justice if I didn't mention Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it says, in the 13th year of the fifth day of the fourth month, etc., etc., he had this vision. Ezekiel had this vision. And he looked, and lo, a stormy wind came sweeping out of the north. A huge cloud and flashing fire surrounded by a radiance, and in the center of the fire, a gleam as a chamber. In the center of it were also the figures of four creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the figures of human beings. Here we go. Figures of human beings. However, each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. The legs of each were fused into a single rigid leg, and the feet of each were like a single calf's hoof, and their sparkle was like the luster of burnished bronze. They had human hands below their wings. The four of them had their faces and their wings on their four sides. Each one's wings, etc., etc. You can go and look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and find all of this. Highly figurative, perhaps, but definitely talking about a vision of the divine, which is highly anthropomorphic. So there's these different aspects. Again, you have hands which look like humans. You have faces. These are different aspects of the divine which exist in the texts, in the Torah itself, in the Chamesh Torah, in the Tanakh, in the Nevim, in the Ketuvim. They all exist then. And then we find it also throughout the rabbinic texts as well. So not just like the Ravad says, which is found in the Mikraot, in the text of the Bible itself. These ideas are also found in rabbinic texts. And I will uh, share a few examples of that. Let's go to Moed Katan, where we have theurgy in Moed Katan. Again, this is another idea. Maimonides doesn't like the idea of theurgy, right? That, which is what? That humans can have power over the divine. But we find in Moed Katan 16b, we find the idea of theurgy. Here we go. And it is quoting a passage from Samuel 2. Chapter 23, verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He that rules over men must be righteous, ruling in the fear of God. And the rabbis explain what this means in the Gemara, in the Talmud. So the, they ask the question, What is this verse saying? So Rabbi says, This is what the verse is saying. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. So the rock of Israel spoke to God. And he said as follows. Although I rule over man, who rules over me? This is God speaking. Although I rule over man, so God rules over man, but who rules over God? And the answer is, it is a righteous person. The righteous person rules over God. Why? Because God says, as I issue a decree, a righteous person can nullify that decree. This is theurgy on the highest level found in the Talmud itself. 
In other words, you can say theurgy is a new thing. It's found in the Kabbalah. It's found in Hasidism. No, it is found in the Talmud itself. Okay, let's put the theurgy aside. Let's go for another one. Jerusalem Talmud, Sota of Sota 8.3. Rabbi Pinchas, in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, said, The Torah, which the Holy One, praise be he, gave, its leather was white fire, its inscription was black fire, it was fire mixed with fire, hewn from fire, given from fire, from his right hand, the fiery law to them. From his right hand, the fiery law to them. Again, right hand, left hand, this idea of right and left, that's found in the Kabbalah. We will discuss that in great depth. It's also found in the text here. And the idea of God giving with fire, these are these ideas that there is fire in the divine. These are highly figurative, perhaps, but also describe the physical in a sense a physical kind of description of the divine and different aspects of the divine which is found in the Torah also we can go on here in Brachot we talk about the soul Brachot 10a Yud Amad Aleph and it describes analogy between God and the soul it says just as the Holy One blessed he fills the entire world so too the soul fills the entire body just as the Holy One blessed he sees but is not seen so too does the soul see but it is not seen and it goes on, just the Holy One, blessed be He, is pure, so too is the soul pure. Just as the Holy One, blessed be He, sustains the entire world, so too the soul sustains the body. This idea of there being a soul, a spiritual part of the, of, of the human, which is analogous of God, that is also found directly in the rabbinic text as well. There's so much of it. I would like to give one from uh, the Midrash as well. Shir Shim Rabbah. Rabbi Shua of Shikhlin said in the name of Rabbi Levi, you find that when the Holy One blessed be he said to Moses, craft for me a tabernacle, he could have positioned four poles and stretched a curtain over them and it would have been a tabernacle. However, the Holy One blessed be he did not do it, but rather he took him up on high and he showed him red, green, black and white fire and said, craft like this for me. Moses said before him, Master of the Universe, from where do I have black, red, green and white fire? So God said to Moses, in their configuration that you are being shown on the mountain. He quotes that verse. So he says, in the configuration of the mountain, that's where you'll find this different fire. In other words, God is talking to Moses and God is showing him things which are divine and they are seen as fire, different colors of fire. In other words, different aspects of the divine, which is found here. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Chagiga 14b which talks about the four sages which went into the pardes, into the orchard. And that is a continuation of a story where Rabbi Laza ben Arach was talking before Rabbi Yeshua. This was in Tanaitic times. It's with Tanaim, people who were found in the Mishnah, so the second century. And they were walking along the way with Rabbi Yossi, the priest, and they said, you too shall expound the Ma'asem Merkava, the design of the divine chariot. And Rabbi Yeshua began expounding and that was the day of the summer solstice and the heavens became filled with clowns and there was appearance of a kind of a rainbow in the cloud. The ministering angels gathered and came to listen like people gathering and coming to see the rejoicing of the bridegroom and the bride. And then there was another story where they spoke about the Ma'aseh Merkava and it tells us that the, that fire descended from heaven and circled all the trees of the field and all the trees began to recite a song. So this idea of the rabbis talking about Ma'aseh Merkava, the ideas which are found in the, the, the design of the divine chariot, those ideas which are found in Ezekiel, 
when they discuss those ideas, first of all, they discuss those ideas. These were ideas which maybe weren't written in the text itself, but they were discussed in great detail by these Tanaim, by these people who studied in the, in the, in the second century. And at least their, the story of them recounting and talking about it is recorded in the Talmud itself, Chagigah 14b, and perhaps not the contents of what they discussed, but that idea that they discussed these things. And it was an awe-inspiring experience, to say the least. Those are found in the Talmud, Chagigah 14b. And then it tells this story about the four people who went into the paradise. They went into the orchard, and the orchard is meant to signify this idea of they they went to discuss and study the greatest secrets of the Torah, those ideas which are not discussed publicly. And who were they? They were Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, a fellow called Acher, and we can talk about him another time, who was Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. And what happened to all of them? Ben Azai looked at the Divine Presence when he went into the Pardes, when he went into the orchard, and he died. What about Ben Zoma? What happened to him when Ben Zoma? He was harmed. He lost his mind. He became crazy. What happened to Acher? Acher, he became a heretic. And the only person who was able to walk in and walk out unharmed, that was Rabbi Akiva. So in other words, there is tremendous fear and danger of going in to study the paradise, into going into having this kind of proximity with the divine. Fire can come down from heaven. You are all of a sudden accompanied by all these Malchai Asharet, all these angels. And a lot of dangerous things can occur. And therefore, these aren't things that the average person or the uninitiated actually gets into and discusses. So what I've presented here is from the Bible itself, from the Torah, from the earliest times, from the time of creation, if you like, from the earliest parts of the Torah, all the way through to the rabbinic times, you find these mystical texts, these mystical conversations, and an apprehension towards that mysticism. But all these ideas, different aspects of God, anthropomorphizing God, they were all found in the text itself. And this is a solid and very important part of our tradition. So what happened then in the 13th century? What was the change that took place in the 13th century? It seems that what started to occur was that there was a significant influence of philosophical ideas which started to make their way into the Jewish tradition. And those ideas started to reread a lot of these texts in a figurative sense. And that culminated, if you like, with the Maimonides text, The Guide to Perplexed, where he basically de-anthropomorphized everything, and not only that, but made everything figurative. And took God and threw him up a, threw him to the highest level possible where you have this negative attribute theology where what is God? There's nothing you can say about him. And that was dicey in the eyes of many people. And then for you now, you have much more open conversations about these ancient, more ancient ideas where there are different aspects to God. What they end up trying to do is trying to balance this idea of God not having a body on the one hand, not anthropomorphizing God in the sense that calling God physical, but by making it figurative and also not losing these different aspects of God. And that became, it seems, to be a really very serious enterprise. And people, very smart people, started to work on that enterprise. Whereas previously, if you look at all these texts which I mentioned, and many more, you don't really see any systemization 
of what God is. There are different aspects of God. There's God, the chariot, and there's different faces, and there's a hand, and there's a wing. And, but there's nothing systematized which explains what it all is and how it all works and how it all hangs together in the Godhead itself. There are, perhaps those ideas and how it all hangs together was discussed in private by some of these teachers, as we discussed in the text with regard to those people who went into the orchard and the story of the discussion of the Ma'asem Merkava, the design of the divine chariot, which was dis- discussed between these sages. And then these fire came down from heaven when that happened. In other words, there was these discussions, but it was very private and it was only for the initiated. And it was only, wasn't discussed in public. It actually explicitly says that these things should not be discussed in public. These were private discussions. Maybe these were speculations on the divine, on the uh, biblical texts, which try to systematize these ideas and to make sense of them and put them into an understanding of what the Godhead is, if you like. But it was never written down. So no systemization of these different verses, which describe God in his different aspects, were ever written down in any kind of way, which would be highly intelligible to the average human being. That started to change significantly in the 1300s. And one might argue that change happened. In other words, the writing down and the systemization of these different divine aspects into a comprehensible model, if you like, that started to happen as a response to this arch-rationalist approach which says that all these texts are all figurative. They all can explain something about God's actions, not about God himself. And it can actually only give kind of metaphors and be figurative in the sense of what God is. And we can get into how Maimonides does that. But from Sadiagon in the 910 all the way up to Maimonides in the 1200s, this is what they were doing. And it reread a lot of these texts. And as the Ravad says, what do you mean? Hold on. Hold your horses. There were some really great religious leaders who actually took these verses seriously and actually anthropomorphized God and saw God as physical. And not only that, there were plenty more who actually see many different aspects to God. A multiplicity, if you like, into the divine. And this sets the stage for this kind of argument, which goes forth till this very day between the Kabbalists, those people who see different aspects of the divine manifesting, emanating is the word they would use, and the arch-rationalists who are more by Maradine in, in, in view and say we can say nothing about God. But certainly because those arch-rationalists had written down treatises like the Guide to the Perplexed, which put forth very in, in very stark terms, and he called people who didn't agree with him all different types of names, Maimonides really looked down upon people who didn't agree with his Aristotelian point of view. And therefore, there was a pushback to that. And therefore, the writing down of these mystical ideas and the systemization of these ideas, which then culminated in the publishing of the Zohar, what is now seen today as the magnum opus, the greatest work, the Bible, if you like, of Kabbalistic texts 
from which everything else now of the Kabbalah actually comes out of. Now, as we're going to see next week, there were other people and other texts prior to the Zohar and other different scholars and Kabbalistic scholars who were prior to the Zohar who also wrote and spoke about uh, a, a systemization of these books. There was a book, uh, a relatively ancient book, called the Sefi Tzira, the Book of Formation. There was Sefer Bahir, the Book of Clarity. There was the Ramban, not as opposed to the Rambam, Rabbi Moses ben Nachman, the Ramban, who was a Kabbalist, and he also took Maimonides to task, and we can talk about that next week. So next week, we're going to talk about the, the who were the characters, the main characters in the main books, which started off prior to the Zohar, which was the culmination, if you like, of, of this very creative period of time when after Maimonides where you end up with the writing of Kabbalistic texts of texts mystical texts that uh, but there were people prior to the Zohar and books prior to the Zohar and we're going to talk about all these people and the books which led up to the Zohar in the next episode but for now this episode what I wanted to do was to, to show that mystical ideas and different aspects of the divine are nothing new in Judaism and what perhaps is new, and what perhaps is an aberration, is this rereading of all these texts, as Maimonides did. Now, where do I sit in all of this personally? I'm very attracted to Maimonides' approach. Very attracted to it. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't study the texts as they're found, and that doesn't mean that Maimonides was necessarily right about this. And what today is this very interesting synthesis, if you like, with a Maimonidean approach to a Kabbalistic approach and people rereading a Kabbalistic approach into Maimonides because no one wants to mess with Maimonides. No one wants to take him on. But if you really read The Guide to the Perplexed, it really is a Maimonides system and the Kabbalistic system really do not seem at all compatible despite the fact that some people would like them to be. But I'm personally very attracted to Maimonidean approach. That doesn't mean, though, that we shouldn't read and study the Kabbalah. There's lots of interesting ideas found there, too. And also to note that the Kabbalah is in very good tradition of Judaism. These ideas of different aspects of God are found all the way from the Torah, as I mentioned, through rabbinic literature. And um, perhaps the aberration is Maimonides wanting people to accept uh, Aristotle as being on par with the greatest prophets may have been a little bit too hard for the average traditional Jew or traditional Jewish scholar to really accept. And the pushback came in the form of the systemization of these different aspects of God in the form eventually of the Zohar and then Lurianic Kabbalah. We're really looking forward to getting into all of that with you. I hope this has been helpful to you. And uh, if you like it, please uh, let me know. And again, as I mentioned, wherever you listen to this podcast, leave a review, like it, subscribe. I would greatly appreciate it. And it would allow other people to find it as well. Where This has been Levy Brackman signing off this episode of the podcast of Truths Jewish Wisdom for today. Thank you so much for joining and until next time.